Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Somehow he lasted 19 years till his knees made him quit. Never really played much, never really cared. Happy just to hang around with a uniform to wear. Moberg, Princeton graduate, went on to study law. Got his degree from Columbia, all the while playing ball. He caught the eye of the Dodgers. They were trying to sign a Jew who might help him sell some tickets in the Bronx and Yonkers, too. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and it's great to have you with us today. In researching the two-part story we just completed titled The Battle of Britain, I ran into a side story which I thought you might find very interesting. As the song says, it's a story about a baseball player named Mo Berg, a man who was an eccentric genius as well as a gifted athlete, a man who had made it to the bigs but who craved a bigger part in the world's affairs, and who became a spy whose missions included infiltrating the World War II German science program to determine if Germany was pursuing an atomic bomb, securing the defection of top German scientists, and parachuting into Norway to find out if the Allied bombing of a water plant which the Nazis would need to create a bomb had been successful, among other responsibilities. So, you ask, how could a third-string big-league catcher from the U.S. achieve all that without being singled out, captured, and shot as a spy? It all sounds crazy, but it's true, and it's an incredible story. The song, by the way, is available to us courtesy of singer-songwriter Chuck Brodsky from his work called Baseball Ballads, Red House Records. Man, I wish I could play guitar that well. Thank you, Chuck, and I'll leave his information in the show notes for all of you. You've already heard about the first third of his ballad. There's more to come, 
as the story unfolds. We didn't want to give it all away too soon. Born on March 2, 1902, in Harlem, New York, Morris Berg was the youngest child of Bernard Berg, a Jewish-Ukrainian immigrant, and his wife, Rose Berg. A self-made pharmacist with his own shop, Bernard, who moved his family to Newark, New Jersey in 1906, was a firm believer in the American dream. He expected all three of his children to take full advantage of educational opportunities and pursue respectable careers. Two heeded their father's wishes, becoming a doctor and a teacher. But baseball and later espionage weren't on Father Bernard's list of pre-approved professions, and he refused to attend any of his son's games throughout his long career. Moberg was the most intellectually gifted of the three siblings. A precocious youth, he asked his mother to send him to school at age three. He learned baseball in grade school and fell in love with it. He was an excellent player early on, and he progressed as a top player through Barrington High School and on to college. From the first, baseball made Berg very happy, writes biographer Nicholas Dawidoff in the book The Catcher Was a Spy, The Mysterious Life of Mo Berg. He would spend a generous share of his life inside ballparks. He felt comfortable, truly at ease, on the field or in the stands. Berg started playing baseball at a local Episcopal church at age eight, adopting the pseudonym Runt Wolf to mask his Jewish heritage in a time of widespread anti-Semitism. He was a star on both his high school and college teams, refusing to slow down until he reached the majors in 1923. He graduated from high school in 1918, was the first Jewish man to be accepted at Princeton, and became a baseball star at Princeton, batting 337 while graduating with a B.A. magna cum laude in modern languages, those being Latin, Greek, French, Spanish, Italian, German, and Sanskrit. Mo graduated in the top 25 of his class. In the pros, he started as a shortstop at the Brooklyn Dodgers, then named the Brooklyn Robins, in 1923. And, like Chuck Brodsky tells us, they signed him to bring in more of the Jewish element in New York City, which worked, and he became extremely popular with the fans and the sports writers. But his batting average for 49 games that first year was a lowly 186, which got him sent down to the minors for two years. He spent that first winter at the Sarbonne in Paris, studying languages. In 1926, he joined the Chicago White Sox, who bought his contract from Reading in the International League. He became a catcher the next season in 1927, when three White Sox receivers all ended up on the injured list, and he did very well at catching. His best year came in 1929 with the White Sox, in which he hit a career-high 288 in 126 games and received two votes for American League MVP. He tore a ligament near his knee, though, in 1930 and spent the rest of his career with the Cleveland Indians, the Washington Senators, and the Boston Red Sox as a backup catcher. He continued two years past his retirement in 1939, coaching for the Red Sox until 1942. In addition to his knee injury, Moe was flat-footed and slow rounding the bases. As one team put it in an interview, Moe had to hit a double just to get a single. He was that slow. But he was liked by everyone. He was very popular and seemed to know everyone. As one Moberg legend goes, at a season opener game in 1938 between the Philadelphia Athletics and the Washington Senators, 
Moe was standing with a few other players who were positioned on the third baseline as President Roosevelt was about to throw out the first game ball of the season. There is a black and white picture of the president standing, his wheelchair not visible, as the press kept that a secret back in those days, as the president throws out a ball, with everyone in the packed stands cheering behind him. According to legend, the president shouted, Hi, Mo, how you doing? And Mo answered, Just fine, Mr. President, thank you. I did check out those dates, and Mo was coaching for the Red Sox at that time. But we can connect Mo with the Washington Senators back in 1932 and 33, and they won the pennant in 33. And maybe he did trade hellos with President Roosevelt in those years. It's very possible. As it turns out, the president would later recognize Moe's war efforts, which we'll outline further on. In an intelligence briefing to the OSS and our allies when he said, Give my regards to the catcher. And another president, President Truman, later offered Berg a Medal of Merit for his war contributions. That story to come. Another true story is that Moe would keep an empty bench seat available for newspaper boys. It was their job to deliver at least seven newspapers a day to Moe, either at his hotel or at the game. Moe was a voracious reader of newspapers, and he remembered quite a bit, so he became a storehouse of information. It wasn't long before he was called the brainiest man in baseball. Casey Stengel said Berg was the strangest bird he'd ever come across, an oddity. Although Bo retired with only a two forty three average, players and managers and coaches recalled that as a catcher, Mo knew how to call a game with the best of them and had a powerful arm which discouraged base stealers. His teammates would joke that he could speak in seven languages, but he could hit in none. White Sox catcher Buck Crows said of Mo, I don't care how many of them college degrees you got, they ain't learned you to hit that curveball any better than me. During his off seasons, Berg earned a law degree from Columbia University and even worked at a New York law firm. While in the majors as a catcher, he would rattle the batter by speaking in foreign languages. By the time he retired in 1939, he had played for five professional teams, including the Chicago White Sox and the Boston Red Sox, mostly as a backup catcher. Berg's relationship with his family was strained, in large part due to his father's disappointment over his career choice but he never hurt for companionship. He cultivated cheering fans, countless friends, and a press corps that hung on to his every word. Robert Elias, a historian at the University of San Francisco, says Berg had a lot of friends in baseball who ranged all the way from the people in the bullpen to people in the upper echelons. Yet Berg, who never married or had children, was also notoriously private, refusing to discuss certain aspects of his personal life. Despite his lackluster performance on the baseball field, his career batting average was as previously stated, 243, and he hit only six home runs during his 16 years in the major leagues. Berg had a larger-than-life media presence. While other players were rounding the bases or waiting for their turn in the lineup, Bo entertained from the bench, telling stories about his travels, detailing the etymology of random words, and chatting with the press in whatever language struck his fancy. Nicknamed Professor Berg, by one admiring sports writer, he was the subject of teammates' admiration and confusion alike. Moe even appeared on a radio show. On February 21, 1939, Berg made the first of three appearances on a radio quiz show called Information, Please. And here are a few clips from that show. Information, Please. 
Presented each week at this time by Canada Dry, famous the world over for its fine beverages. <laughs> Wake up, America. Time to stump the experts. Now is the time for all good quizzers to come to the information please party that Canada Dry throws every week at this time. We provide the authorities. You provide the questions. You may submit from one to three original questions per letter. If your question is used, you receive $5 and $10 additional if it stumps the board. So you may win $15 in all. Don't worry if our editorial staff changes or edits your question slightly. All questions become the property of information, please. Letters with questions are to be addressed to Canada Dry, 1 Pershing Square, New York City. And now may I present our Master of Ceremonies, Mr. Clifton Fadiman, literary critic of the New Yorker magazine. Mr. Fadiman. Thank you, Mr. Charles. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to remind you again that this program is entirely unrehearsed, and we're going to keep it that way. The four quizzes tonight include our veteran trio, the eminent expert in general, John Kieran, the noted New York Post columnist, Franklin P. Adams, and the musical director of the American Way, Oscar Levant, known also as pianist and composer. Our guest of honor, well, I promised Mo Berg to you last week, and here he is. Professor Berg catches for the Boston Red Sox. But in addition, he's got a string of degrees after his name long enough to hang yourself with. A philological baseball player is something new on this program. Okay, Professor Berg, I'll pitch him. You catch him. Remember, everybody, if the board misses, and it will, Canada Dry pays out $10 per question. Just like that. We're off. Now, the next one I think we should all remember from our modern European history... You go that far, don't you, gentlemen? The Ems Dispatch. Ems, E-M-S. Mr. Kieran had his hand up first. The Ems Dispatch uh, was the allegedly falsified telegram sent by Bismarck to draw on the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. That's quite correct. That's a perfectly good and complete answer. Very good. Uh, the fourth, the letter known as Bordereau. B-O-R-D-E-R-E-A-U. Mr. Berg. That was a famous letter that they accused Alfred Dreyfus of uh, having written, uh, where they accused him of espionage. Yes, that's in quite 1898. right. 1898. Uh, that's quite and right. Falsely attributed to Dreyfus. Uh, Bordereau, do you know what the word Bordereau means? Bordereau, I believe, is a margin or uh, an edge to a letter. Yes, it's a sort of schedule drawn up, I, I believe, at the side, something of that sort. It's a baseball uh, picture. That's, that's, that's quite correct. Too. What you say, Mr. Levant? There's a baseball pitcher going to be tried out by Cleveland named Boudreau. <laughs> Boudreau, Oscar. What's his name? Boudreau. Boudreau. Le no, you, you, <laughs> let, you let, let Mr. Berg alone. <laughs> uh, fifth and last, the Willie-Nicky letters. The Willie-Nicky letters. Mr. Berg again. Well, that was between the Kaiser and the Tsar of Russia, uh, just before 1914, before the Great War. Yes, a famous series of... A famous series of letters between the Wilhelm II and Nicholas II. They got four out of five on that. That's pretty good. We'll return with the Ballad of Moberg right after these sponsor messages. And now back to our story. Moberg, the professor of the bullpen, joked with pitchers, reading them the newspapers he used to have delivered. Spoke to them in Russian. Japanese and French He was the greatest scholar That ever rode the bench Mo 
Goldberg and the Babe, they went over to Japan with a team of touring all-stars giving clinics for the fans. This was back in the 30s as the world prepared for war. Mo took a lot of pictures, nobody knew what for. Secret agent never even told his mom of his mission to determine if the Germans had the bomb. He learned to speak good physics without hardly a lisp. He infiltrated lectures with a German scientist. Moberg the walking riddle has put his fingers to his lips. If you recognized him on the street, he'd nod and whisper, Kept a lot of secrets no one will ever know. He knew a lot of people, but nobody ever knew more. On November 29, 1934, a group of American baseball all-stars, including Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, and Lefty Gomez, faced off against a Japanese team in Omaya as part of a goodwill mission organized by retired player Herb Hunter. As Elias explains, this tour and others like it aim to use baseball to create better relations and forestall any real, serious conflict with Japan, which had eagerly embraced the sport following its introduction to the country in 1872. Relations between the United States and Japan were tense at the time, exacerbated by Japan's expansionist fervor and military incursions into China. Berg, a last-minute addition to the lineup who had previously visited Japan as part of a 1932 tour, wasn't with his team that November day. Instead, he was across town, wearing a kimono, trying to sneak his film camera, loaned to him by newsreel, onto the roof of St. Luke's Hospital. Introducing himself in Japanese, Berg claimed to be a friend of U.S. Ambassador Joseph Clark Grew and his daughter, Elsie Lyon, who was recovering from childbirth on the fifth floor. Berg never delivered the flowers he brought for the new mother, but he did capture 23 seconds of footage of the Tokyo skyline and a nearby port. While his teammates were batting for peace, Berg was preparing for the possibility of war. Sam Keane, author of The Bastard Brigade, the true story of the renegade scientists and spies who sabotaged the Nazi atomic bomb, says Berg was astute and aware of international relations. Beyond the innate curiosity that defined his behavior, he was thinking about things in the future, and he took the footage just in case the U.S. needed it. Unbeknownst to Berg, he was also setting into motion what ranks among the strangest career changes in baseball history. The catcher from Newark was well on his way to becoming a spy. After the 1934 trip to Japan, Berg struggled to find a roster willing to sign a 30-something backup catcher. He joined the Boston Red Sox in 1935, averaging fewer than 30 games each season, then switched to coaching after his retirement in 1939. By the end of his baseball career, he knew the game better than most, as demonstrated in Pitchers and Catchers, his 1941 essay for The Atlantic. As recently as 2018, the New York Times praised this write-up as one of the most insightful works ever penned about the game. On the eve of Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor in December 1941, Berg started exploring other professions that would support his lavish lifestyle. Despite his limitations behind home plate, 
Berg could still catch the attention of the powerful individuals around him, just as he always had. Nelson Rockefeller, the future vice president of the U.S., and William Joseph Wild Bill Donovan, a high-ranking official in President Roosevelt's administration, introduced Berg to a line of work that would allow him to explore the world, use some of the languages he knew, and fight for his country, all on the government's dime. He jumped at the opportunity, weighing his options within the intelligence community before accepting a position with Rockefeller's Office of the Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs, the OIAA, in January 1942. During his stint with the OIAA, Berg traveled across the Caribbean and South America, speaking with anyone and everyone he could, often their native French or Spanish, engaging the morale of the soldiers stationed abroad. He quickly realized that South America wasn't going to be one of the major staging grounds of World War II, so he requested a transfer to where the action was, and that was Europe. The OSS, a nascent organization headed by Donovan, a raucous, eccentric cowboy type, was better placed to fulfill this request than the OIAA. The first independent intelligence agency in the U.S., the OSS just did not have very tight controls on its people, says author Keene. People were doing just wild things all over the world. Berg was happy to become one of those free agents sent to Europe to gather intel on the Nazis' nuclear program and, when possible, compel prominent scientific minds to relocate to the U.S. Berg worked alongside Boris Pass's Alsos mission, an Allied initiative tasked with undermining the enemy's scientific development. That World War I veteran and his top-secret operation were everything that Berg was not. Pash was punctual, by the book, and always in uniform. Berg was erratic, informal, never in uniform, and often seen wearing a loose tie. Pash traveled with Allied forces as they liberated occupied territories. Berg generally came in after the shooting stopped and smooth-talked scientists. As Keene says, Pash was involved in intelligence, whereas Berg was involved in spying and all the romanticism that goes along with that. He was known to make some blunders, as one biographer wrote, first getting caught trying to infiltrate an aircraft factory during his training, later dropping his gun into a fellow passenger's lap while on board to a mission in Europe, and being recognized by wearing his OSS-issued watch in enemy territory. Despite his lackadaisical attendance record and general disregard for orders from his superiors, Berg was an effective agent. Keane says he did a good job gathering technical information from European scientists, including Antonio Ferri, Lise Meitner, Paul Scherer, and Eduardo Alnaldi. Berg, in essence, weaponized both the disarming demeanor he'd perfected by telling stories in the bullpen and the assorted knowledge he'd acquired from years of incessant curiosity to cut through the defenses of his targets. During a period of intense intellectual isolation, Arnaldi was the only University of Rome physicist not to leave fascist Italy during the war, and the Jewish Meitner fled Germany for Sweden in 1938. Berg was an individual who could listen to these scientists and, for the most part, understand them. Berg's crucial contribution to the war cause, Keane suggests, was that he could offer Oppenheimer, General Leslie Groves, and other Manhattan Project leaders in the U.S., reassurance in some ways that there wasn't something they were missing regarding a potential German bomb. Beyond these intelligence-gathering operations, Berg successfully persuaded numerous scientists to come to the U.S. either for extended visits or permanent relocation. 
News of Berg's recruitment efforts reached the top of the government command chain, inspiring Roosevelt to joke, I see Berg is still catching pretty well. Most notably, the catcher-turned-spy arranged a tour of American educational institutions for Scherer and got Ferry to accept a position at the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics in Langley, Virginia. By 1944, intelligence gathered by the Alsos mission suggested the Nazis' nuclear program posed little danger to the Allies. But Heisenberg, the undisputed leader of German physics, remained at large, meaning the threat couldn't be fully dismissed. The OSS considered and ultimately passed on numerous proposals to kidnap Heisenberg, including one in which a former Los Angeles cop was assigned to seize the scientist, smuggle him out of Germany into Switzerland, and parachute out of a plane into the Mediterranean Sea, where a waiting submarine would whisk the pair to safety. Ultimately, the OSS settled on a different man and plan. Berg was going to Zurich. Armed with a forty-five caliber pistol and a cyanide capsule, Berg was, in the words of Dutch physicist and also mission scientific liaison Samuel Goldsmith, expected to render Heisenberg hors de combat, French for out of combat, if he heard any indication that the Nazis were close to building an atomic bomb. Berg had three opportunities to assassinate the scientist. At Heisenberg's December 1944 talk, during a subsequent reception dinner hosted by Scherer, and while walking the German back to his hotel. But the spy never took his gun out of his pocket. The traditional narrative, as outlined in Robert Rodat's 2018 biopic, The Catcher Was a Spy, holds that Berg listened to Heisenberg's talk about a totally unrelated topic in physics, gleaned that the scientist was either anti-Nazi or unbelievably behind in the race to harness nuclear energy, and felt it was unnecessary to execute him. As Rodat told the New York Times in 2018, Berg sensed when a runner was going to steal, and even though Heisenberg was trying to hide it, Berg knew he was despondent because Germany didn't have the bomb and was going to lose the war. Dawidoff points out that Berg's German was rusty at best and that he had no formal education in physics. The spy probably relied on the facial expressions of Scherer and other scientists in the room to gauge the tone of Heisenberg's lecture, if not the content. Berg wasn't exactly sure what he had heard, writes Dawidoff, but it didn't seem terribly threatening, and nobody else seemed to find anything amiss either. Keen, for his part, says the OSS was really taking a gamble giving Berg a gun, period much less expected him to commit an assassination in public. There's almost no chance he would have gotten away with it. Two years after World War II ended, Truman decided to replace the dissolved OSS with the CIA, a more organized, accountable intelligence agency. Only 1,300 of 13,000 agents were selected to retain their positions in the new organization, and Berg was not among them. He'd resigned from the Strategic Services Unit, the intermediary organization that housed espionage activities during the transition to the CIA, after officials started hounding him to explain the nearly $20,000 of government funds he'd spent on his European missions. But the truth is that he had been cast aside, and he still pined for the work, according to Dawidoff. One of the big what-ifs to the story of the Battle of Britain we just completed was, if Germany developed the atomic bomb first, what would have been the fate of the free world? And why didn't Germany arrive there first, as they had a large number of top scientists working on developing the bomb? Our OSS, 
where Office of Strategic Services, the forerunner of today's CIA, was asking those same questions as well. There was a race going on between Germany's top scientists and those of the U.S. to build a bomb capable of flattening entire cities. The motives for a weapon such as this were vastly different. For the U.S., it would be a weapon which would end not only war with Japan, but all wars, a deterrent to be kept under lock and key. But for Germany, it was a weapon which, once in their possession, could be used as a tool to destroy their enemies and force capitulation of all weaker countries. Albert Einstein, in 1939, wrote a warning to President Roosevelt. The letter began, F.D. Roosevelt, President of the United States, White House, Washington, D.C. Sir, some recent work by E. Fermi and L. Salazar, which has been communicated to me in manuscript, leads me to expect that the element uranium may be turned into a new and important source of energy in the immediate future. Certain aspects of the situation which has arisen seem to call for watchfulness and, if necessary, quick action on the part of the administration. I believe, therefore, it is my duty to bring to your attention the following facts and recommendations. In the course of the last four months, it has been made probable through the work of Joliet in France, as well as Fermi and Salazar in America, that it may become possible to set up a nuclear chain reaction in a large mass of uranium, by which vast amounts of power and large quantities of new radium-like elements would be generated. Now it appears almost certain that this could be achieved in the immediate future. A third paragraph contained the prophetic words, It is conceivable, though much less certain, that extremely powerful bombs of a new type may thus be constructed. Two more paragraphs outline steps to be taken to accelerate uranium research, and the letter ended with a warning that uranium sales had been stopped in Czechoslovakia, and secret German research was underway. The letter concluded, Yours very truly, A. Einstein. Professor Einstein had never expected he would write such a letter. Apart from the fact that he was an avowed pacifist, he did not believe that the atom's energy would be released. Even after the neutron had been discovered in 1932, it proved to be the magic bullet in atom smashing. He had declared, There is not the slightest indication that energy will ever be obtainable. It would mean that the atom would have to be shattered at will. Contrary to his expectations, the atom was shattered late in 1938 by two German scientists. While working at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in Berlin, they split uranium atoms in half. They promptly rushed into print with their findings, and by the end of January 1939, when the news reached the United States, American physicists quickly duplicated their experiments. All this sharing of discoveries would end abruptly in just a few months, but for now, it was all friendly competition. The big question, after Germany declared war on most of Europe, was, how far along was Germany in this quest? The article, Oppenheimer and the Race to Build the Atomic Bomb, written by London's Imperial War Museum, begins like this. As the Second World War began, so did the race to build the atomic bomb. All major powers set out to make new discoveries in the field of nuclear technologies. The Allies only knew one thing. If they lost the race, the results would be catastrophic. Driven by fear, the Allies began the Manhattan Project, led by theoretical physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer. Germany began with an overwhelming head start, but in 1945 the Allies beat them to it. So why couldn't Germany keep up? Much of that answer is theory, 
but we can safely say that efforts of the OSS and its operatives played a very important role. James Bulgin with the Imperial War Museum wrote, In December 1944, Heisenberg traveled to Switzerland to deliver a lecture on nuclear physics at the University of Zurich. In amongst the audience was an American agent who had orders to immediately shoot Heisenberg if his lecture indicated that the Germans were close to completing a bomb of their own. These actions show us just how paranoid the Allies were right up until they won the race themselves. In a recent article for the Smithsonian titled The Baseball Player Turned Spy Who Went Undercover to Assassinate the Nazis' Top Nuclear Scientist, Zachary Clary writes, On September 18, 1944, a 42-year-old man masquerading as a Swiss physics student settled his six-foot-one frame into a chair in a Zurich lecture hall. Instead of simply listening to the brilliant insights offered by the physicist at the podium, the man was trying to understand enough of the scientist's native German to identify key words, words that could change or perhaps even destroy the world. All the while, he was hoping the gun tucked into his jacket pocket wouldn't fall out, as it had during his trip across the Atlantic. The audience member was no ordinary student. In fact, he wasn't a student at all. He was a retired baseball player named Morris Moberg, and the American government wanted him to assassinate a man dubbed the most dangerous possible German in the field of physics, Werner Heisenberg, director of the Nazi nuclear program. And yes, the answer to the question, how close did Germany actually get to building a bomb of their own? Whilst Oppenheimer was celebrating the success of a first nuclear test in July of 1945, Heisenberg was being held here in Great Britain at Farm Hall in Cambridgeshire with nine other top-racking German scientists having been captured by the Allies. What they were not aware of was that the entire building had been bugged. From these conversations, the Allies would finally learn the truth about Germany's nuclear weapons program. As it turns out, Germany wasn't able to get anywhere near the size and scale and the level of resource necessary to do what was done within the Manhattan Project. They'd also made the mistake entirely of their own volition to send some of the most brilliant minds or to force some of their most brilliant minds to other countries because these individuals happened to be Jewish. On August 6th, the scientists at Farm Hall were informed that the first nuclear weapon to be used in war had just been dropped over Hiroshima in Japan. The conversations that followed reveal just how unmotivated many of the leading German scientists actually were. In fact, many of them indicated they were glad the Allies had won. Heisenberg would go on to claim that he had never seriously contemplated actually building a bomb and that it actively discouraged any discussions on the matter. He was afraid of failure and the potential punishment a fascist government might inflict upon him should he ask for hundreds of thousands of employees and billions in funding only to produce nothing. So it turns out there was never any race at all. But the Allies didn't know this. It was the constant fear of an imagined German bomb that drove them to accelerate their own research. In late 1946, President Harry S. Truman awarded Berg a Medal of Freedom, but the spy rejected the honor, which only vaguely referenced his wartime service due to the classified nature of his work, writing that, The whole story of my humble contribution cannot be known or divulged. Berg went so far as to say that the medal embarrasses me. Instead of a tangible souvenir of his accomplishments, the medal would be a constant, bitter reminder that his wartime adventures and his career in espionage were over. 
Berg never lost his zest for the nomadic life, except for a few odd jobs and an unsuccessful 1952 CIA mission to investigate the Soviet nuclear program. He never worked again. Instead, he wandered from place to place, relying on the generosity of strangers, old friends, distant acquaintances, and what family he had left. Until his death at age 70 in 1972, Berg, the loquacious baseball player from New Jersey who became the subject of international intrigue, remained his own man. Moe stayed with the OSS until it was dissolved in 1945. Afterward, he served on the staff of NATO's advisory group for aeronautical research and development. Known as a man of mystery, Moe planned to write a book detailing his career as an intelligence officer. He never wrote the book, and many of his secrets will never be known. When the OSS was disbanded, Moberg's files were closed, and although he was remembered as a huge asset during World War II, his lack of responsibility to detail, his passion for running up expenses and following his own undirected path, made him an unlikely candidate for the CIA. Berg's advisor status was not a paying job, and as the years passed, his money ran out. He began to be seen often by his old teammates, whom he would count on for some bed space on their travels, even though he wasn't officially with the team. He would be seen exiting an elevator in a hotel where one of his old teammates was traveling, and he would put a finger to his lip saying, Shh! as if he were on a mission. He enjoyed appearing mysterious to his old pals. He also freeloaded meals and hotel stays from his old pals. He stayed once for six weeks as a guest of legendary Yankee player Joe DiMaggio in New York, where he was frequently seen with other ball players who had played against him at Toots Shore, a popular restaurant in New York City. But his lifestyle quickly outlived his expense account. At age 45, he was broke and found himself living with his brother Sam for 17 more years until Sam sent him a second eviction notice. And after that, Mo moved in with his sister Ethel. Before his death in 1972, at age 70, he said, Maybe I'm not in the Cooperstown Baseball Hall of Fame, like so many of my baseball buddies, but I'm happy I had the chance to play pro ball, and I'm especially proud of my contributions to my country. Perhaps I couldn't hit like Bay Ruth, but I spoke more languages than he did. His last words, according to the National Baseball Hall of Fame, were reportedly shared with a nurse treating him after a fall. How did the Mets do today? Ethel took his ashes to Israel and wasn't sure when asked later just where they were. To this day, their location remains a mystery. And you know what? Mo would have liked it that way. Good field and no hit Somehow he lasted 19 years Till his knees made him quit Never really played much Never really cared Happy just to hang around With a uniform to wear Moberg, Princeton graduate Went on to study law Got his degree from Columbia All the while playing ball Caught the eye of the Dodgers They were trying to sign a Jew Who might help him sell some tickets In the Bronx and Yonkers too Moberg the professor 
of the bullpen joked with pitchers Reading them the newspapers he used to have delivered Spoke to them in Russian, Japanese and French He was the greatest scholar that ever rode the bench Moberg and the Babe, they went over to Japan with a team of touring all-stars giving clinics for the fans. This was back in the 30s as the world prepared for war. Mo took a lot of pictures, nobody knew what for. Moberg, the secret agent, never even told his mom of his mission to determine if the Germans had the bomb. He learned to speak good physics without hardly a lisp. He infiltrated lectures with a German scientist. Moberg the walking riddles put his fingers to his lips. If he recognized him on the street, he'd nod and whisper. Kept a lot of secrets no one will ever know. He knew a lot of people, and nobody ever knew more. Moberg the beloved, he had the gift of gab. Kamucher, the celebrity, he never paid the tab. He could get in at the ballpark on his lifetime player's pass. Neat up in the press box, someone always filled his glass. Moberg's son of an immigrant brought his father shame. All that education then to play a child's game. Moe made it to the majors, but his dad would never go see him. Most baseball cards on display at the CIA museum. Long after he'd retired, there was still Moberg the myth. He rode into the sunset, sadly hanging on to it. Appearing on a game show as the mystery guest. But some say disappearing might be what Moberg did best. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Hope you enjoyed The Ballad of Mo Berg. If you did, please send us a kind review. We always appreciate reviews, and they help new listeners to decide to give us a try. Also, check out our ongoing story, Jack London's White Fang at 1001 Best of Jack London, and The Smith Family Robinson at 1001 Greatest Love and Family Stories. We appreciate all of our 1001 listeners and fans and supporters, especially our Patreon supporters, who support us at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. And they contribute just about the cost of a blended cup of coffee once a month, every month, to help us move forward. We appreciate their contributions in a big way. Thanks to all of you. And once again, a big thank you to Chuck Brodsky and his baseball ballads. We'll leave contact information in the show notes for you. 
Tune in next week Sunday at noon for another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Until then, everyone, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon.